this week on the Backtable Podcast. My wife takes credit for that, actually. Uh, <laughs> as, you know, being a pediatric ENT and having three kids and not having a sophisticated way to help your babies breathe better. You know, I mean, I would imagine a lot of people that listen to your podcast may be familiar with the fact that babies are obligate nasal breathers. However, there's, you know, 99% of the population don't understand that babies have to breathe out of their nose for the first year of life. And so... You know, when we had kids and I was a resident, my kid was sick and it was just this awful thing. And we we're using this blue bulb and it's, you know, a commoditized, poorly differentiated product with no solution. My wife's like, look, this is dumb. You know, why don't you do something about this? Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Backtable Innovation Podcast. You can find all of our previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on backtable.com. This is our next installment in the Backtable Innovation Show, where you'll hear stories from founders and physician entrepreneurs who are helping to drive healthcare forward through medtech innovation. Our listeners asked, and we have answered. We now have CME available. You can get AMA Category 1 CME for listening to Backtable and then filling out a reflection. You can find the CME links on episode pages at backtable.com, or you can also find the CME links in the show notes. It's a small cost for the credit, much less than you would spend on a conference, and it helps support the show. Powered by CMEFI, using AI technology to bring the right education to the right place at the right time. You can do this in just a few minutes. If you're already listening to Backtable, might as well get a CME credit for it. Now, on with the episode. I'm Eric Yamaker, guest host for today. Today, we have a very good friend of mine, Dr. Steve Gowdy. Thanks so much for being on, Steve. Appreciate it. Glad to be here. Thank you for the opportunity. So I always like to start with a little introduction of who, they, who people are, but I always like to say, how do you describe yourself to or introduce yourself to somebody who's never met you? So I am a pediatric ENT doctor, which means I pick boogers and earwax for a living. I'm a dad. I'm a husband, entrepreneur healthcare leader, also a fun-loving guy and have a lot of different interests and am, you know, a lifelong learner. So just enthusiastic about life in general. I, I do tend to get myself involved in a lot of things, which also kind of makes me frazzled from time to time. Yeah, we'll talk about some of the juggling that you do with all of your time. But I'm always interested in sort of the order in which people identify themselves. So you always start out with, I'm a pediatric ENT. So you think of yourself as a physician first before anything else. At least that's how you introduce yourself. Can you tell me more about how that has shaped your identity? Yeah, I think being a physician is a an honor and a privilege, particularly when you're taking care of somebody's most valuable possession, meaning their children. and my job, I guess my day, you know, nine to five job is take care of children. And I enjoy doing that. I enjoy meeting with the families and discussing what their concerns are, coming up with treatment plans, doing surgeries, all those kinds of things. And from there, it informs everything else that I do. And, and so it brings me joy. It gives me validation. It keeps me employed. And it really informed some of the other parts of my career that I can leverage that experience, that that day-to-day experience to innovate and create and build value in that way. That's excellent. I, I think, you know, having those skills as physician and, you know, that background definitely sort of leads you into this space. And we're going to touch upon sort of the skill sets that you borrow from medicine as an entrepreneur and as an innovator. I want to talk about sort of early childhood, uh, Steve Gowdy. And growing up, were you somebody who liked to problem solve? Were you somebody who really enjoyed putting things together, taking things apart? Was that something that you sort of grew up with and sort of was your characteristics when you were a kid? Yeah. You know, I feel my parents may be a better source of information than me. What I remember is that, number one, my brother and I fought a lot and we had a lot of energy. You know, that was before people had iPads and, you know, you had to wait till Saturday morning to watch cartoons. Uh, so it may be predating your uh, cartoon experience. I enjoyed the things called Lincoln Logs, so you could put those together yeah, in your houses. Course. Yeah, so then, uh, you know, my pediatrician was super cool. He had all these cool pictures in his office uh, of him hiking and climbing mountains and so on. So that was always inspirational. And then he also had... Uh, little uh, wooden blocks and trucks and things in his office. So I remember those kinds of things. 
you know, that was a different era when you could, your kid, you, you know, as a kid, your parents would just push you outside and say, don't come home till dark. And, you know, you'd be out doing things like making ramps that you're going to jump your bike over with no helmet and, and so on and so forth. So there was a lot of, you know, not me sitting in my garage, you know, soldering a new computer together per se, but lots of exploration and group projects in addition to just you know, being hands-on, I think was that more, more so than I didn't ever necessarily love school just because uh, I have dyslexia. So it was harder for me. But yeah, I like tinkering in a very basic sense. Did you think growing up that because of uh, the dyslexia that you had to work harder than other people? Yeah. I mean, I did have to work harder. I mean, you know, for a long time I called it listexia instead of dyslexia. And so no, I think uh, fortunately my parents recognized that and I'm very thankful that my mom, who's an English teacher, invested in me and she's still very interested in where I put my comments and my semicolons and so on. And and I think that likely has informed my career decision as a pediatric ENT. You know that we have the ability to identify and interject into the lives of our patients to ensure that they're hearing and speech and so on which are all very correlative to reading and writing and, and all that is, is not something that holds them back. And, and so certainly part of being a pediatric physician allows me to give back, right? So, you know, I'm not going to be able to go to everybody's home and help them read, but at the same time, if I can identify somebody that has a learning difference or has a hearing loss or, you know, something that a kid definitely impact their career trajectory by making some sort of adjustment then that's great for me. Absolutely. And and obviously, you know, that intervention in people's lives when it comes to development is a large part of what we do. Are there other things that sort of led you down the road to be a pediatric ENT? I think my personality and my, I mean, I'm not juvenile, but certainly <laughs> always uh, enjoyed, you know, coaching soccer and teaching kids and you know, I taught English and science and math in Africa for a summer after college. So I think it was predestined. I, I don't know that I knew that I was going to be involved in surgery per se. I always thought I would be doing pediatric infectious disease because I like to travel. And I thought that that would be able to be married together. However, obviously I, I chose a different field, but I think in general, kids to resonate with me because they want to be better. They want to get going and by and large have not created or impacted their, their medical problems to any great degree. What was the first thing that you remember in your life of doing, whether it be in surgery or elsewhere, where you sort of started to feel that innovators, that entrepreneurship sort of building up in you? Do you remember a moment or a time where that started to sort of surface? Well, I come from a long lineage of entrepreneurs. My grandfather owned his own towing and mechanic shop. My dad had a lot of different jobs and businesses and ultimately became his own boss. I'm not sure that I recognized that until actually us talking about it right now, that my grandfather was also that way. He was not a successful entrepreneur, but yet he was an entrepreneur, I think, for no other reason than he couldn't get along with other people. And therefore the only boss that he could have was himself. Um, and even that, uh, didn't agree with him most of the time. So I think that independence was something that, that I, you know, was kind of patterning. Right. And despite the stress and everything else that is being created in seemingly a needless fashion, I think the unwavering conviction, at least for me in my current endeavors that there needs to be disruption. There needs to be better things for children, you know, is what motivates and drives that. So it's, it's really kind of addressing that pattern behavior and marrying that with the belief that something different needs to occur and that I need to bring that to fruition just because I have the energy and the desire and, and hopefully can surround myself with people that are better than me to help me accomplish that. Absolutely. And we're definitely going to touch on you know, who you brought in to help you because we need to recognize that obviously we don't have all the skills uh, to be entrepreneurs. Lots of people have good ideas, but building that team is really important. I want to drive it. Uh, one question that we bring up on this, on this podcast, which is are, are innovators and entrepreneurs born or bred? Well, they're all, they're, they're all born. 
right? So That's every true. innovator yeah. has been born. Uh, and I think, I think that there's probably, you know, it's not like a, a yes or no answer. I think. Sure. I think you have uh, Elon Musk, which is a different kind of innovator than, you know, uh, Steve Gowdy or Eric Gantworker. I mean, there are people that just walk around thinking disruptively all the time and they, and they, they may not be able to carry on a normal conversation, you know, that you and I would define because they don't, they don't follow those norms because it just doesn't make sense to them. And, and it's kind of like the, the beautiful mind phenomena where, where they're thinking on a different plan, different level. So I think that that's probably one phenotype or, or manifestation, whereas there are lots of other people in that middle ground where there's lots of innovations, you know, and there's, you know, everybody's an innovator, right? Cause you, everybody's kind of figured out some trick or something. It's like how to, you know, what's the easiest way to get the garbage bag out of the garbage can or what, you know, everybody's innovating. Does it, you know, how far do you take it? What is the risk? What is the reward? You know, do you have a support system that can help you both intellectually as well as like capital, you know, even though we live in a country where there is democracy, you know, that access, you know, the social determinants of health, the social determinants of wealth are very different. Right. And so, you know, the, the struggles that you and I will discuss, which are real, you know, pale in comparison to other folks that really have made a lot out of nothing. So I think, I think the answer is everybody's an innovator. It's just w with what resources do they have? What conviction do they have? What support do they have? Where, where are they in their life? And there has to be, you know, and I, and I think that that is different than the people that, that really just think and act, you know, the Steve Jobs and the Elon Musk, that, that they can't do anything other than be disruptive and be creative and innovate because they, they just don't conform. Their brain doesn't work like that where most of us, you know, we're innovating and we're looking at, like, yeah, is this really worth it? You know, do I want to, what, do I want to spend money on this? Do I want to spend time on this? Do I, you know, how much, you know, and it, it really has to do with your conviction. You have to have almost a, not even a belief, a, a knowing that what you have innovated needs to be there and other people need to have it. And, and really most of what you think, you know, if you logically wrote down all the steps it would take to get there, you'd say, there's no way that's possible doesn't make any sense. It seems like a suicide mission. Having said all that, you know that you need to do it anyway. I love the idea that everybody is an innovator, but there are definitely different genotypes and phenotypes out there that lead to that innovation. And I think resources is extremely important. I want to get back to the idea of conviction, and I want to get back to sort of more specific to your journey. Obviously, you got interested in consumer-level products and in ideation. What sort of was the first step for you moving outside of just an idea to something more and you realize that there's an opportunity here, there's a need here, and I need to be the shepherd of that idea. Well, my wife takes credit for that, actually. <laughs> uh, as, you know, being a pediatric ENT and having three kids and not having a sophisticated way to help your babies breathe better. You know, I mean, I would imagine a lot of people that listen to your podcast may be familiar with the fact that babies are obligate nasal breathers. However, there's, you know, 99% of the population don't understand that babies have to breathe out of their nose for the first year of life. And so, you know, when we had kids and I was a resident, my kid was sick and it was just this awful thing. And we we're using this blue bulb and it's, you know, a commoditized, poorly differentiated product with no solution. My wife and they look, this is dumb. You know, why don't you do something about this? And so, as you said earlier, Unless you have a biomedical engineering background, which some physicians do, you have no idea. Like, how do I, like, I know there's a problem, right? So if any, any business has to solve a problem and it can't be just any problem. It has to be a problem that people are worth, or will, I'm sorry, it has to be a problem that people are willing to spend money for, right? Because otherwise then you don't have a business, you just have an idea. And so, you know, for me, it wasn't really the, the, it was just the problem. It wasn't like, okay, this is a direct to consumer product versus a medical product, et cetera, et cetera. It's just like, no, there's a problem. What is the, What are the current solutions? Why are they terrible? And what can we do differently? What is the special sauce? You know, why, why is this taste like Kentucky fried chicken and not Popeye's or, you know, Coke instead of RC Cola, whatever that it is, you know, and then, and then kind of figure out how to, you know, how are you going to commercialize it? How are you going to, make revenue, all those kinds of things follow after that. But it's really that problem 
you know, and because the, the nasal suction device is a single problem that, I, that I'm solving, but there's other things that I'm doing that are more on the research side of things uh, that will have a different business to business rather than business to customer relationship. Yeah, we'll, we'll delve into some of those other ideas because I definitely want to dig in on those. So what happened? So take me back to that moment. Your, your wife suggests there's got to be a better way to do this. And you say, yes, there, there's got to be. What's the next step? What was that first thing that you did after you're like, yes, this is a problem? Yeah, I don't, I think, I think that now universities have identified that creating and fostering innovation and commercialization is a good thing. However, they usually do it and resource it poorly. And so there's a lot of good innovation and technology that dies on the vine within a university just because the people that are innovating don't have the skill set and they're not matched up with folks that have the skill set to get it be risked and closer to commercialization, as well as lots of hoops and hurdles and roadblocks to getting your ideas out. So for me, it was like, okay, started sketching things, but I don't know how to make anything. Started Googling like, okay, how do I find somebody to start making the things that I want? And so I ended up paying some guy $500 or so to make something very simple, basically to buy a pump and hook it to a battery case. What was it? So I, now that I think about it, I was like, yeah, that guy just took me for a ride. Um, <laughs> you, you know, but that was like the MVP. And, and so just, yeah. you know, dealing with, I was at a different university at the time and dealing with a tech transfer office. And they're like, looking at me like, dude, what you drew on a piece of paper looks, it looks like a chicken. It doesn't look like a device. And, <laughs> and, and therefore this is not worth their time. Uh, you know, the good news is they released the intellectual property to me. And, you know, ultimately I worked with some students at Georgia Tech uh, who helped de-risk it some, and then, you know, continued to find other smart people to help iterate it to where it is today. Yeah, and, and I def we're definitely going to talk about uh, getting IP released because we've talked about that in previous episodes. So you, uh, your wife has this great idea. You yep. start Googling and you find, hey, there's, this might be an interesting design. You have this guy build it for $500. You take yep. it back to the, to the university and they say, what are we going to do with this? You can have it. And then you start working with the well, Georgia it Tech. That, it was not that quick. It was not. Okay. It was just lots of life. <laughs> we seemingly, yeah. seemingly that yeah. quick, right? That is yeah. like, uh, you know, five years distilled <laughs> into a sentence of sorts. But yeah. So we're going to talk about that. So I, I think it's really interesting for a lot of people to understand that this doesn't happen overnight, that there are definitely steps and setbacks. And I, I definitely want to touch upon that and how you persisted through those. What were some of your early failures? going through this process. Now, how long is this podcast? <laughs> as long as you want it. As long yeah, as people yeah, will yeah. listen. Oh, God. <laughs> um, but that, I mean, with, with respect to this specific device and instance or, or just in... Yeah, within your innovation entrepreneur. Yeah. Yeah, okay. because, because I, think, I think one of the things we always hear about is I had this idea, I got it patented, I produced it, I sold a million of them, and then I started another company. And I don't think that people understand where those failure steps were because people sort of gloss over that five years that you talked about and just yeah. say, yeah, yeah, everything just, just happened. But I really want to focus on when you came with an idea and you yeah. had this process, this prototype, and you went to your academic institution, how, how did that go? How did that conversation go? How did you know who to talk well, it to? It wasn't even a conversation. It's just an email, right? It's like you send it into oh, Black really? Hole. Okay. Yeah, it's like pay no attention <laughs> to the man behind the screen, you know? It's just, I mean, but it, again, if you have a, a big university and they have two people that are in charge of all the IP, I mean, they just don't care about that stuff, right? It's like, if you don't, yeah. I mean, it's like even at Stanford, if you don't have a $100 million idea, they don't care because it's not wow. worth their time. They need to spend their time doing coming out with the next COVID drug or the next cancer drug or whatever, you know, that has a $2 billion, you know, price tag or what have you. So, yeah, you know, and again, we're, we're as physicians, we don't have any idea. I mean, we don't know what freedom to operate is. We don't know what a patent search is. I, I never been on Google patent. I mean, that, you know, you know, how does, how does the patent work? What a disclosure is all of those things are just, just constant like, uh, annoyances and failures and, you know, it really is about being put into a milieu of, of synergism 
right? And that's, I mean, that's what these accelerator programs are. You know, Stanford has one in their bio design program. Um, you know, my current company right now is in an accelerator program. But until you get to that point where you, you know, you pair a person that understands the problem and getting back to what do I, what do I identify myself? I'm a pediatric ENT and that's where I identify problems that need to be solved, you know, by listening to the consumer, right? And understanding what the consumer wants and what their pain points are and what, you know, you can start asking them questions. Like for my nasal suction device, I mean, I'd done research for 10 years or 15 years because I was listening to families and listening to my wife. Um, Failure is to engage with any type of engineers for a long time. Failures, not understanding what a disclosure is, uh, which we can talk about. Failures, not, you know, it's, I wouldn't say not being focused, but it's, you know, at the end of the day, you go home, see your kids, wash the dishes, you know, also it's like do all your emails and your charting and it's like 11 o'clock and like, okay, that's not prime time to start working on your idea. So those are, those are some of the failures. There's, I have some other good ones, but you know, that was the, the prior institution. I guess I get a one funny story is I filed, uh, on this, this device that I now have a patent. I filed the patent on my couch the night before a disclosure, not knowing what I was doing, but I, you know, basically, you know, the tech transfer office at my current university also kind of just left me high and dry. And, and so I really, I, I was on the, I filed the patent. On my own, oh, which yeah. no, it was terrible. I filed like I didn't understand <laughs> what a you know a provisional versus a non-provisional. What I filed, right, everything right. was wrong. Every everything was wrong. But you know, the good news is I preserved the filing date and I got I don't know I got a patent. I mean, but it's all expensive and crazy. And again, you're doing it at eleven o'clock at night, and it's just like gosh, you know that that's where the rational people are like that seems dumb. I'm gonna sit here and like watch TV with my family instead of file a patent. Well, it's always interesting how people are doing these as hobbies, more or less. I hear this story all the time from physicians where at 11 o'clock at night, after the kids are to bed, they're working on these ideas and they're sketching things out and filing for patents the night before disclosure. So I do want to talk, uh, delve into that a little bit because both you and I are in academia. And as we are trying to foray into this world of business, this world of innovation, if you will, and entrepreneurship, this is a little bit murky for us in academia. Can you tell me a little bit more about that between your previous institution and your current institution, what it was like innovating and having outside interests while at an academic institution? I mean, they, they don't really care what you're doing as long as you get your charts closed and, you know, you're not yelling at people in the hospital. You know, <laughs> I think, I mean, everybody says they want entrepreneurship and innovation. I mean, you know. Who's going to say no to that? How, however, you know, they're not going to free up money necessarily. They're not going to, I mean, there's not really any direct incentive to doing it. And and I don't even think it's a hobby. I think it's a passion, right? Because I mean, hobbies you do during the daytime more than more often than not, like a hobby would be golf or boating or, you know, I mean, I guess you could read at night. Uh, that would be a hobby, um, but it's more a passion. Like why would you be, because it feeds some part of your brain, you know, and maybe it gets back to that phenotype part. It's like maybe, yeah. you know, maybe there's a genetic difference between Elon Musk and, you know, the Steve Gowdy to some degree, but there may be some overlap, right? So maybe it's our dopamine or our serotonin or something. There's something that there, you know, it is a source of like this itch that you want to scratch. And the more you scratch it, you know, the better, the better it feels and you get, you get excited about it. So I don't know. I, I think it is a, you know, a hobby is one kind of general thing you're going to do forever. Whereas this is like a focused, you know, innovation. Like this is like, I'm going to be laser focused on, it's like staying up writing a term paper almost, but that you want to do it. Anyway, I, I don't know. I don't, I, I kind of got, got myself sidetracked so we can get back. That's okay. You can keep me back on <laughs> track there. That's okay. I always want to give you the the chance to, to talk yeah. it out. You know, I think for me going through institutions, because one of the things that people have talked about is trying to develop things that have IP at an institution. And a lot of institutions have right. very strict rules about ownership of IP. And that's sort of more what I was interested in is when you had an idea and yeah. you were at a current institution, right? Because the institution has some rules around IP development while you're an employee. How did you find out, navigate those waters 
And you said you emailed somebody and, and got it released, but were there other steps beforehand to educate yourself on IP, ideas, tech transfer, and where did you find that information? Who did you talk to? How did you figure that out? At the prior institution, I was just kind of going back and forth with those people, but I didn't have any partners that really innovated or brought anything to, to market. Um, so I think that I think that is finding people, similar people that can give you that perspective. But in this day and age, I would imagine that the vast majority of the people that are listening to this, uh, meaning that you know you and me and one other person uh, are employed by <laughs> you know somebody. If you have an employment contract in general, they own your IP. So it doesn't matter what you think, even if you didn't read all of the little lines in your employment contract. If you work for Kaiser, or you work for wherever. They probably own it. I don't know. Actually, uh, I'm here in Atlanta and there's a health system called Piedmont. And they actually release their IP to all their employees. So, wow. You know, but but again, it, it depends on what you're innovating, right? So if I want to make a new soap dish, that's probably, it's not real relevant to my day-to-day -day job, you know, unless it's like specific to a hospital or something that is not owned by your employer. But if, you know, if you use any, like the computer at work, or you use the whatever, whatever at work, or it's relevant to your day-to-day -day job, then they own that IP and that's just the way it goes. Having said that, most institutions aren't going to necessarily stand in the way of it directly, even though it's kind of indirectly, they slow things down and don't pay attention. So it's frustrating. Uh, you can educate yourself. Most institutions will have a part of their website that talks about all this stuff and there'll be roadmaps and seminars. I took something called the uh, Kaufman Fast Track lecture series that <laughs> it was fascinating to sit in the room, you know, and there's a bunch of really smart scientists in there. And then when they got to the part where like, hey, actually, your big institution owns all your IP, people were just like super angry and upset and yelling. <laughs> and I'm like, you can fight about all you, you get mad all you want, but that's just the way it goes, you know? And so just understanding what the rules are I think are important and really understanding what a disclosure is, uh, it's, it's very important because if you don't do that right, then you don't have any IP. Yeah, correct. No, that's always been a big, because I've changed institutions several times and that's always been a very big discussion around IP and disclosures and conflict of interest. Has that come up at your current institution with regards to conflict of interest and things like that because it sort of does align with what you do? Not really, you know, I mean, I don't do... I'm very careful about what I do at work and what I, you know, I'm not talking to my patients about my product necessarily unless, unless they're asking about it or they're, they're having a problem that, you know, I, I let them know, but certainly provide a disclaimer that there is a conflict of interest. I have some research grants, but again, you know, and some industry sponsored studies, again, there's no, there's no real conflict because it's not relevant to what I'm studying. So no, I don't, I don't think it is, you know, interestingly, this next year, I may have to not be the CEO of the company once it hits a certain revenue uh, threshold. Then, you know, I would either have to recuse myself. I and I don't know what the specific rules are, but I can't be a CEO of a company that makes, you know, has a million dollars in revenue. Money, or yeah, exactly. yeah. So, so I think that there, what you know, all of that becomes relevant. But you know, when all of a sudden your company's making money, you know, they seem to be more supportive and interested because they're gonna they're gonna collect checks, you know? Right. So as you sort of delved into this a little bit more, you, your wife had the idea, you got a prototype. We fast forward five years through a bunch of different failures. Uh, and you've now started to get some traction. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me through that process, you know, who, how did you figure out how to start a business? How did you figure out your addressable market, venture capital, raising funds, were there specific people you talked to to sort of get that advice besides listening to the Kaufman series and talking to the tech yeah. transfer black, uh, black box? Where did you get your information? Who did you bring on? Who did you talk to? And how did you get that started? Yeah, I mean, in general, if you're going to be an entrepreneur, you need to be friendly, right? Even if you're an introvert, you need to like make contacts. And, and I happened to run into a guy walking into a lecture series an older gentleman that had a lot of experience in tech transfer and he helped me out and you know we worked together for a number of years getting non-dilutive funding through some local government georgia research alliance which is amazing and 
you know, they were mentoring me a little bit, the place that, you know, there's a, a design house attached to and affiliated with Georgia Tech, but not part of Georgia Tech that I worked with and made relationships with those folks. And so, I mean, it's just you, there is a big startup community almost anywhere you are in the country. Obviously, if you live in the Bay Area, it's going to be bigger and different than, right. you know, Atlanta or New York or Chicago or whatever. But in general, you can find people you know, and, and look for maker spaces and accelerators and so on. But, but really it was just wandering, wandering, literally wandering into a conference, opening a door for somebody, having a polite conversation, getting a, a business card and then saying, Hey, are, you know, why don't we work together? And that works. Right. And so that kind of got it farther down the road with the non-dilutive capital, you know, to get the company going, I mortgaged my house, you know, I mean, basically took out a construction loan, you know, kind of as a, as a kind of a quasi business loan, you know, because it's not, it's not sexy. It's not SAS. It's not, you know, a hepatitis B drug or what it's not, it's nothing crazy exciting and it's a hardware product and yeah. So bootstrap, bootstrap, bootstrap. It's a lot, you know, obviously there's a pandemic and that, you know, messed some things up. And because yours is a consumer level product, right? It's a nasal suction for, for babies. Did yeah. you have to go through FDA process? Did you have to involve regulatory at all? You know, so the, again, this gets back to get building a team and being supported by the folks that are smarter than you. The gentleman that I was talking about that helped me get things going, kind of had some other things he needed to do and, and was less willing to be involved, you know, and, and I met a guy, you know, as we were getting the design finalized, I met a guy who came on board as a biomedical engineer and he helped work through all of the regulatory stuff. So nasal suction devices are regulated by the FDA, but they're 510k exempt. So all you, you need to, to have a quality management system, you need to use good manufacturing practices, all that kind of stuff. So, you know, we set it up. So it's a class, so there are some on the market that, that view themselves as class one devices. You know, we, regulatory analysis that we did suggest that these are class two devices that are 510K exempt. And so you just register with the FDA, you use quality management system, you have good manufacturing practices, and then you can sell the device. So, and, and again, that weirds people out. Like they're like, cause consumer people are like, they don't do med tech. Yeah. And so they see this as med tech, but the med tech people are like, no, this is not really med tech because I can't sell it to a hospital for a thousand dollars, even though it costs right. me 10 cents, you know? So it's a weird, yeah. And it's for kids, you know, which again, we started out talking earlier. People don't innovate for children because it's not as big of a market as adults. So I pushed, pushed all the chips in. Yeah. People are, I think are more protective of their children than they are of themselves. So they're always yeah. very skeptical. Yeah. 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 Well, but at the same time, they want, they want the best for their kids. So it's just Correct. this kind of, uh, yeah, this weird, weird situation. So, uh, you leverage funds, your own funds, you mm -hmm. have a prototype, you're starting to go through regulation. Yep. How do you start thinking about scaling? How do you figure out, you know, when do I reach capital? How do I get investors? How do I scale the business? Tell me about that process and where you were at and how you found manufacturers and assured quality, things like that. Yeah. So a couple of things. Um, one, you need to make sure, getting back to the problem solution, you need to make sure you have a problem and make sure that your solution is not just a little bit better, but at least 50% better than what exists. And so from an engineering standpoint, again, I'm not an engineer. I mean, there's uh, all kinds of, you know, the user needs, user requirements, all of those things, you know, you need to do almost A-B testing with a bunch of individuals. We did some group focus groups, and then you just realize that you pay a bunch of people to come sit in a room and there's one person that's going to talk the whole time. The other people are going to sit there and eat snacks. And they're not <laughs> going to say anything because this one loudmouth is saying everything. And, and, you know, he or she, I mean, the other folks are like, dude, I'm getting paid to be here. I'm not going to come and fight with some random, random person I don't know. So. You know, that's another mistake is doing the, uh, you know, kind of the group interview feedback versus individual feedback. But yeah, you need to make sure that your, your problem is ready to go. And, you know, we use a local group like to design it. Like once we got it past the MVP, 
there are people, they're engineers. That's what they do. They know how to do it. They work for Medtronic or they work for Smith and Nephew or whatever. They know how to do these things. It's not rocket science necessarily, but you need to have professionals that know how to do it and take your MVP and make sure it, it meets the customer needs. Like one of the things that we identified on the nasal suction device in, in having individual interviews is that, that parents wanted to control the level of suction. So there's three levels of suction on our device and we didn't have that before, you know, but that was, you know, listening to the consumer and understanding it. Uh, and then, you know, once you've got all that down, then you need to do kind of design for manufacturers because so, you probably didn't create your, your prototype to be efficiently made and so on. So, so once you've done that, most design firms are going to have manufacturer relationships. And so most of those, I mean, it's just random, right? It's like, okay, you know, here in Atlanta, the, the, our contract manufacturer also works with a, several other startups here and randomly, you know, and this kind of gets back to the preparation for running a business. I was in business school. I decided to go back to get an MBA. And during our MBA trip, we went to Hong Kong and I took a field trip over to Shenzhen kind of pre-pandemic and visited the manufacturer where we're manufacturing now. So really understanding and developing those relationships are hugely important. You know, so that, I mean, that's kind of the, you know, not linear road where we were going to get an SBA loan and the pandemic hit. And then I ended up with a construction loan and, you know, I had identified the manufacturer, you know, 18 months before based on some random interactions. And, you know, it's not a, a linear process. You're kind of pivoting and, you know, changing and, and identifying other people that can help you. But it's an ecosystem. I mean, I, I would say most entrepreneurs want to help each other out and are friendly to each other. And, you know, yeah, it's good, but it's it's stressful. It's interesting that there there has been this community building of physicians. Obviously, there's a lot of different Facebook groups and things like that where physicians are doing stuff outside of clinical practice. Have you engaged with any of those? What and and also why do you think that's been happening more and more as of late? You know, I don't know. I'd have to look at the data to say is it happening more or less. I mean, I, I think that there's it's always more, been. It's more obvious. I guess it's more, it's obvious. more out there. Yeah. It's, yeah. Obviously, there were probably underground groups before, but it's right. becoming a little bit more mainstream because at least in my experience, I've seen a lot, lot more groups that are having people engage in these conversations. I think institutions and employers are starting to recognize the value as, you know, that's another value stream for them. And so they want to foster and develop that. Kind of the same reason Google gives people a day off every week to like come up with a moonshot is everybody else wants a moonshot too. So I think that strategically... From the top down, people are driving innovation because it it can certainly help the bottom line. I think the number the number of people that are investing is growing. I think the number of accelerators is growing. I think, you know, work for 30 years in the same profession mentality has changed. You know, I mean, I don't know how often you talk about millennials on your podcast, but, <laughs> you know, people that are coming up today don't necessarily say, okay, I want to go and work at the same institution for 30 years and retire and be very proud of that. They, you know, that, that doesn't necessarily capture their imagination as much. And, and we're, you know, we're the people that are in front of the, the problems front and center. So there's no reason why that shouldn't be ideated. You know, if, if people are leaving medicine to go, I don't know, start a, start a, you know, Brussels sprout farm or something. I don't, I think that that's different. Right. But if, if people are, are, are looking at the problems, you know, and disrupting them, I, I think that there's been an increase in disruption in general in our society. So it may just reflect that. Sure. Absolutely. And I also think that information is much more available. I think right. as physicians, we are naturally curious. And I think we have the capacity to really delve deep into very complex subjects. And I think that having that information accessible has led to the Again, you talk about the millennial, they have information at their fingertips of very True. deep, complex processes, right? I got very interested in artificial intelligence. And so I started actually delving deep into this. And it's unbelievable the amount of information without going back and getting a degree that you can access just by looking online. Same thing with all of these business and the entrepreneurship and the investing. Think about all the investing and all the groups that physicians are getting involved with now with real estates and syndicates. And I think that because information is so accessible, you can be much more agile as you transition from parts of your career, which is why I don't think that that old 40-year-old 
you know, 40 years in clinical practice is really not practical and not necessary anymore. I think we as physicians have the ability to see problems, but also be able to solve them ourselves. And now we have the information to be able to do so. So I, I've seen a general trend over the last you know, 10 years myself, even though I haven't been in medicine that long. But one of the things that I started to realize, and the reason why I think that was because as I started to branch out from clinical practice, people started reaching out to me and they started saying, listen, I'm, I'm burned out or I'm getting close to burnout and I need something else to do. And they didn't even know what they wanted to do, but they were just like, tell me, give me advice. Like, how did you skill yourself up? How did you delve away from clinical practice? Have you had people that have approached you to say, how did you do it? Do you have advice for me? Here's an idea I have. Can you help me? I think a little bit of yes and no. I, I think, you know, in my day-to-day, week-to-week interactions, I'm not sure that the people around me necessarily want to be doing all this. You know, <laughs> I think that they, they're more like, you know, it's like you see the car that's driving down the road and it's snowy and icy and then it starts spinning. You know, people start slowing down and pulling off to the side and say this, you know, I don't know where this is going, but it not it might not turn out good. So I think that's a little bit of that. It's like that seems like a lot. Um, as a as a physician leader, I have to be very careful about what I demonstrate is normal and expected Absolutely. for my partners because it can lead to burnout or feelings of, uh, you know, it's called pace setting is, is, is kind of the term uh, used in business is that, you know, that, that you hold an unreal, uh, hold other people to some sort of weird, unrealistic standard. So, you know, I don't expect other people to be as driven and passionate about kind of work related things. You know, I think everybody is driven and passionate, but it may be about family. It may be about gardening or reading or whatever. So, you know, I haven't had a lot of, I mean, people are kind of like, Hey, how do you do all that? Meaning, Hey, you should probably slow down kind of thing. Yeah, no, I definitely have had people that have come to me and said, okay, tell me a little bit about IP. Tell me about starting a company. You know, I mean, there's, and as you said, there's been a lot of breakthroughs, right? Legal zoom. You know, I set up another company two weeks ago on legal zoom, you know, and then you, then you can buy the domain and you can buy the, you know, the trademark. You can do all of that stuff about, you know, it depends on how much money you're willing to spend, but you can spend about 30 minutes and do all that. Whereas before, you know, it's hours and hours and hours of time and energy. So, um, I, you know, there are some tips and tricks to figuring that stuff out. Uh, you know, we have, you know, started a group within our ENT practice an innovation group. And so people can bring ideas there, but, but again, it's mostly the same people, you know, I mean, occasionally there'll be somebody that comes along and says, Hey, what do you think about X, Y, or Z? And, you know, we, we gloss over it a little bit, but you, you are a physician leader. You're in a very you know, strong academic practice and you're in a leadership position. How do you decide where to spend your energy or where your passion is going to take you, as we talked about earlier? You know, because you could obviously ascend through the ranks of academia and be a chair. You could, you know, obviously go through hospital administration and be a CEO of a hospital. You are right now the CEO of a company and you can put your energy and passions towards that. What does the future look like and how do you decide where to send, spend your time and your, your energy? Yeah, I think it's a good question. I mean, it just depends. You know, you talked about juggling. I mean, it's really about spending plates, right? And, you know, you kind of see what is the biggest plate or the plate that has the most important dish on it, meaning, you know, you, maybe the steak plate gets a little bit more attention than the, <laughs> than the ramen noodle plate or what have you. Um, and which one seems like it's getting ready to fall? and or that you have some accountability to getting that done. I, I have been learning to say, no, I don't like that. That's not a, a good word for me. It seems like a bad word because it's easy to say yes, but I've been saying no more. You know, it's all I about still, I still haven't learned that trick yet. Yeah, yeah, I know. Well, that's good. That's why I keep asking you to do things. Um, <laughs> but it's really about scaling yourself, right? It's like, what can you delegate? What can you automate? What can you stop doing, right? And so... Again, hiring good people, building their skill set, investing in them, giving them some some amount of uh, autonomy, you know, and that's what I do at the business, right? It's like, you know, the guy that works with me, you know, he has, he's aligned because he has equity. And I said, hey, if it's, a, it's less than a $500 decision, I don't care. Just do it. You know, it makes no difference. I mean, it makes a difference, but it's like, I, you can't, you know, you do, I don't ever want you calling me and say, hey, can I order some paper clips? Yeah. So. And doing that in the clinical side too, 
you know, if you have a lot going on, uh, it takes work not to be very, very direct, you know, and you need to, you know, in the entrepreneurial world, being direct and task focused and, you know, and maybe, you know, a little bit frustrated is okay. But if you're in a big corporate world where the, you know, you just have to remember where you are uh, and what, and, and to kind of meter your, your expectations. I'm a, I'm a, like a big visual guy. So I want people to give me data that I can look at and look at the yeah. trends and make decisions rather than you know, sending me a four page email, you know, so, so helping the people around you provide you the right information to make the decisions that you need is, is hugely important, you know, and then, and then to your point about what is my career hold is, it's really about, you know, where will I have the, the biggest scale impact to improve health and wellness people? You know, and I don't know what that looks like. And, you know, maybe it's being the CEO of a technology company providing health and wellness solutions for babies, or maybe it's being a chair of an EOT department. Maybe it's being a surgeon in chief. I don't know. You know, maybe it's a, being a Brussels sprout farmer. I, I mean, you know, so I think it, each, each one of those has its own impact and, and really, you know, getting back to the true north of, of your existence for being, it's like, what is it that gets you up in the morning? What makes you excited, even when you're dealing with stuff that's frustrating? I think the other part we haven't talked about is like, who are you as a person, right? So uh, our whole uh, group in our academic university did a Berkman personality test and really said, oh, okay, who is, who is good at what? Who's bad at what? You know, how do I understand them? How do they understand me? You know, I did the same thing in my company. So then it just demystifies all these things and people can understand it's like, you know, Gaudi. It's like point aim, you know, where other people it's, you know, point, 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 aim, aim, aim. I think I might shoot, you know, and then by that time <laughs> I've already like, I've just had it. I can't, I can't even think about right. it anymore. So, so that I think really having that self-reflection, the ability to be understood and to identify that there's always going to be mistakes, that there's always going to be room for improvement and having that continual process improvement mentality is key and critical. and and you know, it's hard, particularly in medicine, it's hard, right? So for my partners, they don't like it. You know, they, they're used to getting A's on every test. And I'm like, eh, you know, actually you can do this better. You can do this better. You can do this better. It doesn't feel good, you know, um, even if you're doing a lot of things right. I would say that's actually been harder on the medicine side than the business side, because the business side sure. is just like, hey, you know, this customer service interaction didn't go right. So let's automate it to go better, you know. It's interesting. You also bring up the business side of things. And a lot of people have asked me if they should get an MBA. I do not have an MBA. I've not entered into MBA school. What's your suggestion to physician entrepreneurs who are interested? Should they get an MBA? How do they decide if they should get an MBA? And what specific skills have you gained that have helped you in your journey? Mm. I don't know. I mean, I think it really depends on what you're going to do with it, right? So if you're, sure. <laughs> I mean, if it's just for, the sake of having a couple more letters after your name. I mean, yeah, you know, there is some value in that. Is it worth uh, $50,000 in two years of your time or a hundred thousand dollars or, you know, 200, whatever the cost is. Right. I, I would say probably not. If your goal and desire is to be more involved in management and, you know, thinking about profit and loss statements and looking at business ops, whether it's on the clinical side or on a, Startup side, I think that that is helpful, you know, but I'm just a curious person and a lifelong learner. So I, I enjoyed that and I wanted to do it and it's been impactful for me. I, honestly, the strategy side has been hugely uh, impactful. So, so, so again, there's lots of ways to get business knowledge. So it's not just an MBA, there's you know, the MMHC. I mean, there's like lots of different acronyms that you can get that will give you that insight. I would say the MBA is the most broad. And, and if you do want to start your own business, that would make sense, right? I mean, I, I think if you're like, hey, I'm going to start up, you know, a Brussels sprout company, having that fund of knowledge will help you. And not because you're going to be doing all the books. I don't think that's the best use of your time, right? So being, you know, using lean principles, you should be working at the top of your scope and maybe planning on where to plant the Brussels sprouts per se. But, you know, having other people that you're working with and being able to have intelligent conversations about accounting things. Accounting was so painful and terrible, yet it's important, <laughs> you know, and it's like super relevant to our business model because it's like, you know, all of these 
accounting rules and is it cash basis accounting or is it accrual based accounting and you know inventory and last in and first out all of these things like i barely scraped by because it was just like <laughs> i can't i can't keep this in my brain long enough you know even medical school but if you're like i'm never going to do that that seems like a maybe not a great use of your time right if you're like i don't ever want to know about accounting i don't care you know then then maybe that's not you know i mean if if I don't know. Like you talk about like informatics. Like I, right now I'm like super interested in informatics. I want to go understand that a lot better. You know, if you're really an informatician, go do that. Or if you really want to be, you know, like what you got a master's in education. I mean, figure out what's passionate to you and how you'd be the best at it. And then, and then surround yourself with other people that have the complementary skill sets as well as personalities. So I I think that's probably more than what you wanted, but that, that would be my long answer to a short question. No, that's exactly because when people ask me if they should get a master's of education, I think it's very similar because I asked them the same questions. I said, do you need street cred or do you need the skill set? And that should help you decide because there's many options. You could do it on your own. You can get a certificate or go through an intensive, you know, something that you pay for, or you can go and get a master's degree. The only reason to get a master's degree is because the skill set will be delivered and you need street cred, right? You need to have that immediate street cred where people say, oh, they have this degree, they must know what they're doing. Because otherwise, you have to have an opportunity to demonstrate that skill set to somebody for them to have confidence in you. And so that's where I think, similar to the MBA, is I think a lot of physicians don't really know the business world as much. So I think they definitely need the skill set. But the question for me is, do you need that immediate street cred for some reason? Or do people just need to meet with you and discuss with you to realize that you have that knowledge and that skill set? Yeah. I would say I would say that there's some like at least at my current university there are ways to get concentrations in it without having to get like exactly a two year degree right there's like uh, a several weekend course on finance for healthcare I mean things that that'll give right. you the information you need that you know you don't really need to understand you know what what is gap and how is it relevant to you know Correct. running a looking at what is a cap table and all these like crazy things that that just may not be ever relevant to you. Correct. And I think that is really the key there because there is probably a lot in your MBA program where you say, I'm never going to use this, right? There's a, there's a statistic, unfortunately, uh, that because of the doubling time of information that you will only actually use about 6% of your knowledge from medical school. So that's about four years worth of knowledge and you only use about 6%. So I can't imagine when you're going through an MBA program and spending all this money, you don't probably use all of that knowledge. Some of that knowledge is important as background information and you have a general understanding. But if you were to in- instead go dive deep into this topics that you need to, it may be more efficient use of your time and your money. Yeah. 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 So yeah. I say the same thing about education. That's the reason. Yeah. So uh, we're going to just do a, a few more directed questions, short answer, quick fire. What other areas of innovation are you interested in? And, uh, and you mentioned informatics. Are there other things, other areas that excite you or interest you that you are reading about, listening about? Yeah. So informatics is super interesting. I don't know a lot about it. I actually took a couple of courses this fall on public health and informatics and then realized I had too much on my plate. One of the, one of the plate, like there, all the plates were wobbling and getting ready to crash. So I said, okay, I need to pause on this and figure out how do I can kind of, as you said, reframe and what is it I'm trying to get out of it and how do I get it, you know, and, and maybe getting an MPH and informatics while all this other stuff going is going on didn't make sense. Um, like really more, more directly, I'm interested in tissue regeneration in children. Obviously I'm interested in children, but it applies to adults um, and looking at oral mucosa being the lining of the mouth and how do you deliver drugs on scaffolds to reduce the inflammatory component, increase the regenerative component, and therefore improve healing, reduce revision surgeries is one thing. And then also bone regeneration in the craniofacial area is something else I'm, I'm passionate about. And so those are two things that I'm actively studying in the lab. And we actually just got uh, an NIH grant to study the impacts of the oral microbiome and oral cavity wound healing. And also looking at, can we deliver pro-regenerative bacteria to the oral cavity to improve wound healing. So it's all about like tissue regeneration and reduction of surgeries and morbidity in children. That's fantastic. Yeah, we didn't really delve into too much about your lab. How do you find time to do that? 
<laughs> again, you hire really good people. I mean, I'm not in the lab pipetting. Actually, they yeah. let me come. They let me come and do the surgery, so I'm a technician in that sense. There you go. And then you know, I mean, with Zoom, you can be in so many places back to back right. to back. It's you know, and again, it's it's a it's a it's a passion. I mean, I like actually this morning I I got up and uh, I'm on an NIH study section, so I'm reviewing grants today on my on my weekend, and and at night yeah, I'm writing emails or writing grants or writing papers. So, but I have a a good group of people who I collaborate with. Uh, who are very, very good, uh, as well as folks that work in the lab that are also great and, you know, self-starters. Uh, what book are you reading right now, either for fun or other? It, I don't know. It's like everything, really. Uh, <laughs> so it's called Untamed. It's called Untamed. Untamed, yes. Yeah. And so Untamed, it's a, uh, the reason I'm reading it is because one of my partners uh, is involved in the diversity, equity, inclusion group at our university and that's we have a book club and so we read that so i've been reading all kinds of books that are expanding my perspective and and so untamed is a book that wanders through lots of different things uh, with respect to self-perception with respect to personality addiction racism sexism all all of the you know lgbtq all, all of those things so it's really been a tour de force of that i'm not done with it but it's yeah, pretty interesting. I have to actually be done with it by Monday or Tuesday, so Oof. Yeah, I can report. Finish. No, I'm I'm two thirds <laughs> of the way through, so I'm good. So you're good. You're good. Yeah. Uh, my my last question is, what is your main advice to other people who are physicians interested in doing innovation and entrepreneurship? Rule number one: understand what a disclosure is. A disclosure is when you tell the world what you're doing before you've patented it. So that's rule number one because you're no longer doing innovation, really. Rule number two is just surround yourself with good people. And, and as you said, with the internet, you know, you can find lots. Of, I, I've had people just randomly reach out to me. I don't know, never met them. And they're like, hey, how do you do X, Y, Z? And, and most people are like, okay, you do ABC, you know, just join some of these groups and, you know, reach out to people like you or me or whomever. Because as I said, entrepreneurs are generally very friendly, willing to help and well, point, they're not going to do the whole thing for you, but they'll at least point you in the right direction or tell you what not to do, which I think is also equally important. So, you know, leverage what, what resources are in your university as well as in, you know, some of these like Facebook or Instagram or TikTok or whatever, wherever you get your, your uh, connections and, and then reach out to people and invariably they're going to be, you know, and, and again, there's state sponsored, there's city sponsored incubators. And so there are people that are just paid to answer your question so you don't need to feel guilty about doing it. Uh, but but right. most of us don't mind because somebody else helped us out. Absolutely. I, I found the same that this is just a very great space and there's a lot of great people. I just LinkedIn message like CEOs of companies just because I'm interested in, they usually are, I'm, I'm about 90% of them get back to me because everybody just wants to help each other out. And I think that's a wonderful part of being in part of this community. How do people get in touch with you? How do they hear more about your company, about your product? Yes. Yeah, so Dr. Knows Best, N-O-Z-E-B-E-S-T. Uh, we have a website. You can go on there. You can send me a message to that. You can send me a message uh, on LinkedIn. Either way, happy to listen to your ideas, point you in the right direction. Uh, you know, if you're interested in uh, baby nasal aspirators, we have identified product market fit. We're scaling the company. We'll launch another product this year. And, you know, I was on a call with one of our advisors, you know, and business school is good because I met some people that can, I, I, they're a shoulder I can cry on. And he said, oh, well, you're <laughs> actually in the valley of death right now. And I'm like, well, it feels like that. It's super hot. I'm really <laughs> thirsty all the time. And, and I feel like I'm going to die because this is like gone crazy. So, but I, there is a big startup and entrepreneurial community within medicine as well as just in general. So, you know, go to Facebook or LinkedIn and join a bunch of those groups and see what people are doing. You know, there's lots of places you can get non-dilutive capital. I mean, we got a bunch through uh, the, the Georgia Research Alliance, um, you know, but you can also, uh, the SBIR grants, STTR grants, there's foundation grants, you know, depending on what you're interested in, there's lots of people and lots of money, you know, and services in kind that can help you get over that hump, go from that idea to your MVP, go from the MVP to, you know, getting into commercialization, that kind of stuff. So, so I mean, you know, it's, it's the saying that a, 
a journey of a thousand miles starts with the first step and just make the step. You know, you can't think about it. If you think about it too long, then it's just, you, know, you drive yourself crazy. Well, thank you, Dr. Steve Gowdy. Thanks for being on Backtable Innovations and look forward to hearing more from you and from your company. Thank you very much. Have a great day.